0: My guest today is Professor Mark Baer, who is Professor of Neuroscience in the Picover Institute of Learning and Memory and the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His laboratory is interested in how the brain is modified by experience. He uses a variety of methods to examine the synaptic modifications that form the neurobiological basis of learning and memory. Welcome, Mark.
1: Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, I want to discuss a few of your uh, interest areas uh, as part of your lab at MIT. A- and one of them is this disease state uh, called uh, amblyopia. Is that the right way to pronounce it? Yes, Yes. Amblyopia uh, is a prevalent form of visual impairment. Uh, you say it's a, it's a disability that arises during infancy and early childhood. Uh, when inputs to the visual cortex from the two eyes are poorly balanced. So it's a, it's a bit like you, you don't really have the early reinforcement, it sounds to me, Mark. Uh, is that the right way to think about it, that to, for the brain to learn how to see? I think that's
1: a, a good way of looking at it. In a sense, the brain, what what actually happens is the brain learns to see through only one eye. Yeah, um, because the inputs from the two eyes are no longer in in proper correspondence. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's still learning, um, and it's learning to essentially disregard um, one of the inputs. But of course, there are consequences.
0: Right, and so so this happens because of misalignment of the eyes, some sort of asymmetric refraction, uh, things like that. Right. So the the eye, the design of the eyes themselves, something went wrong.
1: So. The, the sort of definition of amblyopia is a visual impairment that is not apparent um, in the eye per se mm. so in other words the eye is actually fine um, the retina is fine uh, it generates signals that are going into the uh, the rest of the brain um, just fine um, so the, the defect in amblyopia is actually a, a wiring defect within the brain and in particular in the visual cortex. Now, the, the reason that that wiring defect occurs, as I said, is because um, there is a, um, not a proper correspondence in the patterns of activity arising in the two eyes. Mm. So. Normally, of course, uh, the two eyes are viewing the same thing at the same time, and you have well-correlated patterns of activity coming in through the eyes. But in the case of a condition called strabismus, where the eyes aren't properly aligned, and that causes double vision, um, so the eyes are not are not looking at the same thing at the same time. and So there's a an imbalance there. Mm-hmm. And similarly, uh, in a case where there's um, a refractive error in one eye that by itself, is trivial to correct with a lens, for example, a contact lens. Um, but if it goes undetected, you have this situation where only one eye can form a crisp image of the world, and the other eye is, is fuzzy. Hmm. And uh, the consequence is again this miswiring that occurs in the brain. And probably the most severe cause of amblyopia is a, a unil- unilateral cataract. So there's a clouding of the lens in one eye. And so it's just impossible to form uh, an image on that eye, even though, again, the eye itself, other than the lens, the eye is fine. Again, it's not difficult to correct a cloudy lens these days, Mm -hmm. but if it's not detected or corrected early in life, then you'll have a
0: permanent visual disability. Right. So, So I don't know a lot about this, Mark, but oftentimes one of your eyes is more dominant than the other, right? I remember, uh, when I had glasses for the first time, uh, my my right eye was much more powerful compared to my left eye. So when there is some sort of a asymmetry like that, uh, would that also cause some level of um, loss, you know, in terms of learning?
1: Yeah, I think that that would be an example of um, the imbalance in refraction in the two eyes. So, for example, I I also have refractive error um, and I wear one contact lens to correct that. So it balances the two eyes. Um, So my vision's fine. Um, But uh, had that refractive error occurred during infancy um, and gone undetected, there would be a, a good chance I would develop
0: amblyopia. So so that is the issue. Um, and so if you don't pick it up, so if you had the issue in infancy and early childhood, and you don't correct it then, uh, then, the, then it's much more difficult later, right? That's the issue that the wiring, you know, sort of gets less plastic. That's exactly right. That's exactly right and so 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 how do we how do we deal with it now so first of all what's the incidence rates of this mark uh generally saying?
1: oh approximately uh three percent
0: of the population is in am- adult amblyopia three percent so that's quite high um and, and so so these are uh, these are adult population uh and we have a condition we have they have this condition so, so what's the corrective measures or is there any sort of therapeutic intervention for it? Right, so um,
1: if it's detected, if the cause of amblyopia is detected early, uh, it can be corrected. So for example, as we were using the example of a cataract, for instance, yeah. um, obviously a cataract's pretty obvious. And if you are lucky enough to grow up in an area of the world where there's good medical care, um, then that cataract can be corrected um, in an infant and there'll be no permanent visual disability. So the, the visual system will develop normally. Um, similarly, um, if the um, strabismus is developed, so the eyes are crossed, for example, uh, surgery can be done to um, weaken uh, one of the muscles that controls the eyes and restores um, the alignment of the two eyes. So that can be corrected again in infants. Um, and finally, if there's a refractive error, um, that can also be detected and, and corrected with lenses. So if the, if the cause of the imbalance and activity from the two eyes is discovered early enough and corrected early enough, there need not be a development of amblyopia. Um, unfortunately, um, sometimes even, even with early detection and correction, Uh, amblyopia can arise Um, and so then you have to develop you know treatment strategies to try to uh, restore vision um, in the the weak eye the amblyopic eye and the classic uh, therapeutic approach um, is to patch the good eye put an eye patch over the the dominant eye Mm -hmm. so-called fellow eye uh, and force vision through the amblyopic eye And this can um, promote recovery of vision through that eye. So it's not sort of the good news is um, that the deficit can be reversed, but it only works if um, that patching is done early in life um, before the age of approximately seven or eight years of age. Mm -hmm. Um, After that, it was a very poor poor prognosis when those um, connections sort of um, solidify
0: yeah. So, so symptomatically, um, if you have this condition, one of your eyes is functioning. So, so you don't, you have less depth perception and things like that. Is that what happens?
1: Yes. You have a, you know, a failure of, um, stereoscopic depth perception. You know, we use cues in the environment to determine depth and that's fine.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, far objects appear smaller than close objects, but, um, for pr- uh, precise, um, Stereopsis requires a good image formation in the two eyes to calculate depth. And so, you know, amblyopia, um, you, you are left with one good seeing eye. Um, so it's not total blindness, but there are lifelong, there is a lifelong disability associated with it. And of course, one of them is loss of stereoscopic vision, and that can limit, uh, career opportunities. Um, we can have negative impacts on, um, academic pursuits and, um, of course, there is a great risk of total blindness if the uh, otherwise healthy eye is damaged over the
0: lifespan. So so this refraction error you talked about, is astigmatism related to that or no?
1: Uh, it's re- it is related in the sense that astigmatism um, is an irregularity in the surface of the eye um so that not all parts of the of the visual field are uh focused at the same uh, on the same plane on that sheet of film at the back of your eye the the retina yeah um so you know these are all fall in the category of refractive errors you know it can either be you know too much refraction too much bending of light not enough bending of light uh, or an eyeball that's too long or an eyeball that's too short or an irregularity in this um in, in the in the surface of the eye that bends the light, um, mm-hmm. so all these things can contribute to amblyopia.
0: And uh, is there a significant genetic uh, component to it? Well, um, the I
1: would suspect there is a significant genetic component to um, strabismus. Uh, the the sort of um, misalignment of the eyes that comes with um, uh, different muscle lengths that could easily have a genetic basis, but the causes of amblyopia are sufficiently diverse that many of them are just sort of you know errors of early development um, that are not necessarily um, clearly tied to
0: genetics. Uh, any um, any diet or nutrition related things that we know of that that might cause it. Uh no no okay. not 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 to my knowledge. Yeah, so so th- this is an issue that the brain has wired itself uh, <laughs> given a sort of um, I should say non-optimum inputs. <laughs> they do the best it could, uh, and once the person is beyond ten years, twelve years old. Uh, it's really difficult to reverse it, right? So are there methods? Uh, you, you talked about surgical uh, weakening of certain certain aspects, but uh, are there any therapeutic in- interventions to increase plasticity uh, or that is not possible? Well, um, actually, uh, the
1: brain has a considerable potential for plasticity, even after the age of 10. which we should all be grateful for. If we remember this conversation, it will be a consequence of that plasticity. Um, So the challenge has been to try to re-engage those mechanisms that may lay dormant. Um, And there's been tremendous progress um, in this field um, to achieve that in recent years. And I, you know, one of the... um, the reasons that um, we study amblyopia, or I should say the consequences of early uh, monocular deprivation, is that first it's a um, it's a example of the critical role of sensory experience and the final wiring of the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So students of nervous system development have been fascinated um, by this phenomenon Um, for, you know, well over half a century at this point. Um, And as I say, it's not necessarily, um, basically the the brain is wiring depending on the information that it has available to it. And if you have a defect in the sensory organ, um, that's going to degrade that information. And it's going to essentially take advantage of the input that it has um, to achieve optimal vision, even mm. though one eye gets left behind. So um, it's not an example of abnormal development. <laughs> really, it's an it's a example of, of normal development under abnormal circumstances.
0: Mm.
1: So it's, as I say, it's been a, of interest to neuroscientists that are trying to understand the role of experience and neural activity and refining connections in the brain And also because it's such a dramatic example of the impact of altered sensory experience, it's been studied in the context of learning and memory for for a long time as well, with the assumption that if we understood better how experience and deprivation make synapses stronger and weaker, we would gain tremendous insights into how synapses are modified in the brain um, during the memory formation, for example. So it's been a very rich um, area of study. And as you say, um, one of the features of it, um, prominent feature of it is that this um, amblyopia or this visual impairment is a consequence of altered visual experience during early development. So if the same alterations occur in adult, for example, I gave you the, the example of my eye where I wear one contact lens. This was developed as a consequence of aging. And uh, I'm not going to become amblyopic as a consequence um, because my brain, those circuits are no longer sensitive to that abnormal visual experience. Uh, However, the sort of flip side of that, I mean, on the one hand, that's great. We're not vulnerable, as as vulnerable in adults as we are to children in abnormal sensory experience. the, the flip side unfortunately is is that um, the prospects of reversing a deficit uh, diminish as we get older mm-hmm. and the uh, your question really was is is um what's being done to try to promote uh, recovery of juvenile plasticity. Um, to allow for recovery of function, and it, and it's a deeper question than just amblyopia because it applies to recovery of function after all sorts of brain diseases, damage, uh, injury to the brain. So again, it's a it's a system that we have to study um, processes that are, are extremely important from a neurotherapeutic point of view. So the um, the in, in recent years, um, there's been a lot of progress in understanding uh, the factors that bring to a close this period of sensitivity to abnormal visual experiences. We call it a, the critical period. Mm-hmm. So as, as we said in humans, it ends at about age eight. So there's been a lot of progress in um, identifying the factors that start to constrain Uh, the degree and type of plasticity that's permissible in in the brain after that age. And with that knowledge has come some sort of exciting avenues of discovery of ways to sort of reopen um, or take those breaks on plasticity away (laughs) and and, uh, allow potentially um, plasticity to take over to restore uh, vision in the context of amblyopia or brain function generally
0: in the context of brain injury. Right, right. Yeah. So like you say, you know, it's it's a broader question. It's about sort of a systemic uh aspect of the brain. Uh it seems to be really good at learning things early on. It it gets sort of locked in. And then once it's locked in, changing things are much, much more difficult. Uh, and we see that in all aspects of the brain function, right? So you, you another interest you have is the synaptic substrates of visual recognition, memory. Um, you say detection of novel stimuli that may predict reward or punishment requires long-term memory for and recognition of stimuli that are familiar. Um, so so uh, talk a little bit about that. So detection and familiarity recognition, uh, you say are often impaired in neuropsychiatric diseases. Uh, so, so understanding those those things are quite important. So, um, you're going through going through life, um, sort of running experiments. Mark, when <laughs> I think about it, uh, some of those experiments succeed, some of them don't. Uh, so, there is a positive and negative reinforcement happening all the time. And if that is not happening in in some systematic way that could lead to lead to issues
1: <laughs> yes i mean um let me let me uh, let me reorient this a little bit yeah. and um I, I because i think this is an interesting illustration of um of the progression of science <laughs> actually um and So when I began my career, you know, many, many decades ago now, um, you know, the burning question was to understand, was to um, elucidate the mechanisms by which visual deprivation and experience modify connections in the visual part of the brain. Mm. And um, that was my singular focus as a scientist. was that question and um but of course over the years um you make along the way unexpected discoveries they derive from the core interest um, but they they, it gives you an opportunity to uh, form a branch off the main trunk of the tree Mm -hmm. and um, some branches you choose to ignore um, some branches your your students will pursue Um, and then some branches you say, God, this is too interesting. I can't, (laughs) I can't resist. (laughs) So, um, so this, these experiments on visual recognition memory fall in that category. So, um, when some years ago, the, the field that was studying the synaptic basis of amblyopia, um, really converged on the use of mice as an animal model. Mm. Um, they have a number of advantages um, for doing this kind of mechanistic study. Um, I will say they have the disadvantage of not being particularly visual species. Mm. So they have actually a pretty lousy visual <laughs> system, but we use it anyway. Um, and um, along the way, we a student of mine, um, who is now a very successful professor at Columbia named Nate Sawtell made a really unexpected discovery, which was he would um, record um, the responses in the visual cortex of the mouse to a very simple stimulus, which is just a or just a pattern of stripes. We mm-hmm. call it an oriented grading stimulus. And he would record the activity elicited by that stimulus. And this is an awake mouse and then mouse was put away, came back the next day and he would record again. And we were not expecting that response to change. Hmm. Um, but what he discovered was that um, every day he came back, the response would get a little bit larger and a little bit larger and a little bit larger right. until it reached an asymptote. Hmm. And uh, we Uh, You know, there were a lot of reasons that could have been an artifact, but um, Nate and um, another graduate student at the time, Misha Frankel, had the good sense of saying, I wonder if what would happen if we shifted the orientation of that grading to a novel orientation. Hmm. Uh, And what they discovered was, is that if you shifted the orientation, even by just a few degrees, the response was back at what was the same as the initial baseline. So he discovered this really, really dramatic form of experience-dependent plasticity in the visual cortex. Mm-hmm. So this response was really growing. I mean, it could almost double in size, which is not a subtle effect. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: And um, so we called that stimulus selective response potentiation. And um, we have, I think it was, I can't remember when it was discovered. Over well over ten years ago, and uh, and we've been studying it ever since. And um, one of the, um, I think the, you, in a sense, it was a phenomenon um, that was for which we we didn't really understand the significance <laughs> until mm-hmm. more recently. Mm-hmm. And thanks to the work of others, um, in particular, uh, Sam Cook, <clears throat> who's a professor at um, King's College in London now. Um we found that um, if animals are given the opportunity to explore these stimuli, the first time they see a stimulus like that, they're quite interested in it, and they'll run up and explore it. Um, but with with successive days, they lose interest because <laughs> the stimulus itself conveys no relevant information. It's not rewarded, it's not punished. Um, it's novelty is worn off. Right. And so what we, Are observing is the changes in the brain that occur when an initially novel stimulus uh, becomes familiar. And familiarity, recognition of familiar stimuli that confer neither reward nor punishment is extremely important so that we don't devote computational resources to those stimuli. We really are tuned up to detect novel stimuli, and we—that's <laughs> what this process is—is is actually uh, used for. So it's used to filter out uh, meaningless information um, and be primed to attend to uh, novel stimuli. So we call it visual recognition memory. It's also you could call it um, mechanisms for novelty detection. Are basically, two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. And the, this is um, a very fundamental um, process uh, that we, we depend on and that can go awry in disease states. So, you mentioned schizophrenia, yeah. autism is another example um, where there's a, a, a difficulty in, um, in sort of coping with novelty. Mm-hmm. And learning to habituate, learning to no longer react to stimuli that are
0: uh, non-threatening. Wow, yeah, that that is really fascinating, Mark. So you know the the problem to solve, even in the computer science world, is it, really discarding information efficiently, right? Uh, right so the the algorithms that uh, that are being sought is really, Um, really, you know, efficient discarding of information because information overflow uh, is the biggest problem uh, from a decision perspective. Uh, It's the same problem for the brain, right? So um, a a very efficient brain would, like you say, would recognize um, familiarity very quickly and and don't really devote computing resources to those those stimuli so that they can optimize around novel, uh, if I understand this correctly Mark, novel stimuli. And, and, and that's useful in variety of, the variety of ways, I would imagine. Yes, that's
1: absolutely correct. And, um, and we just feel so fortunate that we have an opportunity to study this uh, process. You know, it's, um, it's a fairly low level uh, decision of, of recognizing novel stimuli um, but it's also fundamentally important. And, um, and and we just have a very robust uh, way of studying the mechanism now.
0: Yeah, so the, the neuropsychiatric diseases, schizophrenia, autism, you mentioned, um, th- these are situations where, where the brain is unable to do that. It's basically reacting to um, stimuli has seen before, uh, sort of the same fashion as it would to a noble stimuli?
1: Yes, I mean, that, that actually is a, a feature that was recognized very early on um, in schizophrenia is uh, essentially a, a, a difficulty in um, essentially modulating a behavioral response to, to familiar, innocuous
0: stimuli. So, so does this lead us to some sort of um, intervention um, for those diseases in any way?
1: Well, we, that's, the, that's the hope. Um, we're, we're not there yet. Um, I think that we, we have learned enough about this process um, in the mouse, visual cortex, um, to recognize that it can be disrupted in a lot of different ways. <laughs> so there's a lot of ways, a lot of not surprisingly, there are a lot of ways to break a machine. And I think the challenge that we have is understanding, you know, which of those potential defects are the cause of um, pathology in a particular disease state. And so something, in other words, Someone that is given a diagnosis, say of schizophrenia or autism, um, has a broken machine. But the cause of that uh, the cause of that disruption can vary from one individual to the next, and so the appropriate treatment will vary from one individual to the next. And I think the challenge that we face in the field is trying to parse um, the patients that have these disorders into groups that would we
0: could predict would respond to particular therapeutic approaches. Mm. So so inf- if information overload is, is one of the issues here, Mark, I wondered, could there be some sort of external filters? In other words, if the information going into the brain is mediated in some way, would that have some effect?
1: I think that's an interesting suggestion. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. I'm just, I'm just asking questions.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want <laughs> to get too far away from what I'm competent to discuss. Yeah. But uh, you can imagine that um, sort of um, li- limiting uh, sensory stimuli could have a beneficial effect for people that are uh, unable to process a particularly rich uh, sensory environment yeah yeah i think for example in the case of at least some cases of autism where um you know there can really a a big problem is sensory overload and obviously the strategy that's adopted by all caregivers of people um, Mm -hmm. that are affected that way is to try to limit (laughs) sensory overload like don't you don't take your kid to disney world um -hmm. so that's you know essentially that's being done empirically but what we'd like to really understand better is um What's going on in the brain? And uh, are there some clever ways that we can um, restore normal function?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking, um, you know, yeah, as artificial intelligence progresses, you could have a companion, let's call it a machine, uh, that is able to sort of learn uh, where the optimum inputs. Uh, might be uh and so you know you could have a companion machine that that you know uh, produces the the right amount of input (laughs) into the brain uh and it it could learn from you know the uh, the feedback it's it's receiving as well uh you know it could be interesting in the future to to think about things like that potentially
1: i I think that's a very interesting suggestion i'm thinking in terms of um what what comes to mind is um, the sort of sensory overload that would come with a a pilot, yes, yeah. particularly in a you know combat situation where there's a lot of incoming signals and trying to filter, you know what what's a flock of seagulls and what's a, a missile that could kill me, um, hmm. and uh, and then you know modulating the the alert um, that is available to the pilot to make a decision.
0: Right, uh, right. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fascinating area. We'll take a quick break, Mark. Uh, When we come back, we'll talk more about autism. That sounds great. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back, uh, Mark. We were talking about uh, the brain, uh, its ability to uh, to use information um, and as it, uh, as it uses it, it, it gets locked in, it loses its plasticity and that has implications for diseases like uh, amblyopia, um, that happens in infancy and early childhood, um, but as as uh, people grow up, uh, it becomes a more difficult thing to uh, to intervene and correct. And and similarly, um, there are certain uh, neuropsychiatric diseases like uh, like schizophrenia and autism, uh, where the brain appears to be uh, sort of overstimulated. Uh, because it couldn't uh, really discard um, familiar uh, information or familiar stimuli that they have, it has already seen. So it has to deal with a very large amount of information, and uh, and and that might be sort of an underlying condition for some of those diseases. Um, the the idea of autism, it's, it's now largely called autism spectrum disorders (ASDs) and intellectual disabilities (IDs). Um, it's another area uh, of your interest, and your lab is doing a lot of work in this area. Um, you say one of the main barrier has been identifying the defective cellular processes within the brain that disrupt behavior and cognition. Increasing evidence indicates that many cases of ASD and ID have a genetic etiology. So. Do you want to talk a bit about what we know um, about you know, kind of the direct connection between the brain's design, brain's function, and these diseases? Sure, um,
1: so we, I, I sort of gave the example uh, before of um, of this uh, path of discovery where we, we began studying visual deprivation We had one branch of our tree that came off to study visual recognition memory. And another branch of the tree um, that came off was the study uh, actually of a specific genetic cause of autism and intellectual disability called fragile X syndrome. (laughs) And um, so a little, a word about fragile X, Uh, a fragile X Is a monogenic disorder. So it's a disease of brain development that is a consequence of the silencing of a single gene um, called fMR1 that encodes a protein called fMRP. (laughs) And we um, were studying um, the mechanisms of. Uh, experience-dependent synaptic modification in the context of our studies of visual development, and one of the phenomena that we were particularly interested in is one called it's called long-term depression. It's um, it specifically refers to a um, activity-induced decrease in the strength of synaptic transmission, so yeah. uh, weakening synaptic connections. And we were pursuing a, a mechanism for a form of this type of L- LTD, we call it. Um, and we made a number of discoveries at the time that we didn't anticipate. Um, and one was that this particular form of plasticity required the immediate synthesis of new proteins of the synapse. Hmm. Um, and so we became interested in what are the mechanisms by which activity can regulate the synthesis of proteins at synapses so you know purely a basic research question here <laughs> uh, and you know another one of the you know wonderful rewards of a scientific career <laughs> where you know now we had to learn about protein synthesis regulation um, so in our research, we are search of the literature, uh, we came upon, um, this protein FMRP as being a protein that is in a healthy brain, normally synthesized in response to, uh, activity at the synapse. Mm. And so we thought, well, this is, uh, this is an interesting candidate, um, for a critical protein in this form of plasticity. Mm. So, um, I, Another example of how science happens, I happened to give a a research seminar at a meeting um, about some of our work and I, unbeknownst to me, I was sitting next to the geneticist who discovered the mutation responsible for fragile X. (laughs) His name is Steve Warren at Emory University. Mm -hmm. And Steve, you know, leaned over and said, that was a really interesting talk. You know, would you like to look at the fragile X knockout mouse so a mouse <laughs> that was the model of the human disease yeah and uh i said well yeah that sounds like a great idea <laughs> so <laughs> so we um started studying these fragile x mice and uh we now are the the trail gets a little uh, windy here but but basically the bottom line is that um in the fragile x mice there appeared to be too much protein synthesis hmm. at the synapse. So in other words, um, the FMRP protein normally serves as a brake on protein synthesis and the absence of that FMRP protein in the disease, um, you, it's essentially like losing the brakes on a car. So you tap the accelerator and the car goes careening down the hill out of control with no brakes. And that's the analogy of what was going on at the synapse. Right. So we uh, that was unexpected, uh, but we knew something about what the signals were that regulated that protein synthesis. And we had the, the idea that perhaps if we inhibited um, those, that signaling in the brain, mm. Uh, we might be able to correct, not all of Fragile X, but many features of Fragile X that we could ascribe to altered protein synthesis regulation. Mm-hmm. So we, this became known as what's called the MGLU-R theory of Fragile X. MGLU-R is a uh, abbreviation for metabotropic glutamate receptor. Yeah. Which is the key molecule. Yeah. So we set out to test this idea we and many other laboratories around the world set, set out to test this idea and uh, and were surprisingly successful. So we found that many, many uh, deficits at many levels of analysis in, in fragile X animal models could be corrected by inhibiting this neurotransmitter receptor. Oh, yeah. So we were, of course, buoyed by that success. And we started wondering if defective protein synthesis regulation might be a common theme in other genetic causes of intellectual disability and autism. Mm -hmm. And so we um, started digging through the literature about what was known uh, at that time anyway, and indeed a number of other monogenetic disorders that are characterized by intellectual disability and autism, such as tuberous sclerosis complex Um, Rett syndrome. Uh, These were disorders that also could be sort of easily connected with the idea that uh, a fundamental problem is altered protein synthesis regulation and Mm synapses. So we were very excited about the possibility that maybe um, therapeutics that we could discover by studying Fragile X might be more... uh, Uh, broadly useful for other causes of autism. Now, of course, we now know autism is extremely complicated. There are hundreds of different um, genes that are implicated. Um, Not all of these will converge on altered protein synthesis regulation, but many still, many do. Um, And so it's kind of like the example I was giving you earlier about there's more than one way to break a machine. Um, But in the case of Autism, For example, maybe there's six different ways that we can disrupt circuitry that ultimately manifests as autism. Well, then, if we could understand what those six things are, which of them would respond to a particular therapeutic approach, we could make some great progress there. So that's, that's a question that fuels a lot
0: of our work. Yeah, it's... um... Like you say, the machine can be broken in many ways. It's a machine that's finely tuned, <laughs> finely positioned on a knife edge, uh, can go in either direction very quickly. I, I was just uh, thinking, Mark, that you know Alzheimer's disease research um, in a direction that that attempted to do things, uh, at least without knowing a lot about it, in a similar way to to reduce production of you know amyloid plaque or, or other things in the brain it hasn't really yielded much um for for the disease right um do we uh, did you see this to be different
1: well i should say hope springs eternal um <laughs> the I, I will say this um we had um you know really exhilarating results in the animal models of fragile x yeah, uh, And we have a lot of advantages in Fragile X because in the sense that we, we know the cause of the disease. Um, we have good animal models of the disease because yeah. it's a single gene disorder. And many of these approaches that we were um, sort of pioneering in, in mouse models of the disease also worked in other animal models, including a fruit fly model, of Fragile X and a rat model of Fragile X. So we we had everything going for us um, in terms of sort of reducing the risk um, in translating the discoveries from animals to humans. Yeah. So clinical trials were done uh, using these same inhibitors, and they were not successful in Fragile X. Mm. And this of course was a big disappointment. Um, but It's important, in my view, it's important that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, there's a certain, a number of people throw up their hands and say, oh, another example of a failure to translate a mouse discovery to a human. But I think it's very important to keep in mind how much, how little we know when we cross that bridge into doing a human study. For example, I mean, some trivial questions like, What's the right dose of the medication to use? Mm. Um, What's the right duration of treatment before you could expect to see a benefit? We're talking about brain development here. Um, You know, are there side effects that will limit the exposure of the brain to this um, drug? And very importantly, what are the right metrics to measure an improvement in Mm. function? So these are all unknowns when these studies began, and now we know a lot more. So actually, I think we're very well positioned to um, have a success in fragile X. So I'm personally quite quite optimistic that we're on the threshold of a success, and I think it'll the it'll not only I mean, of course, it'll be wonderful for individuals with fragile X and their families, but it'll also have the effect of um essentially validating the usefulness of the animal models in this disease
0: yeah i would imagine mark that the timing is also important right so the earlier the better from an intervention perspective definitely definitely and so yeah so you know uh i don't know what what clinical trials you know what the um what the characteristics of the population there was um were those um in certain age bracket or what what was the characteristic?
1: Yes, I mean that's a gr- a great question, a great point. Um <clears throat> one of of course when you're trying when you're doing a clinical trial, particularly one with a new medicine that's never been used in humans before, yeah, the number one priority is safety. And so um, you know, the FDA holds us all to a very high standard to ensure that uh, experimental medicine is safe and the safety can be demonstrated for the duration of the study. Yeah. And they're very reluctant to give you the green light to go into a pediatric population with a new therapeutic uh, entity yeah. or modality. Right. So the, the early studies to treat Fragile X were by necessity done in older um, patients. Right. So many of them were, were adults, middle-aged adults. They could go down as young as um, late adolescent. Um, but the, um, I think until uh, there was enough safety data, mm. uh, there was no chance to go earlier. Now there, is, there are studies underway um, where they're using much younger subjects with some of these same medicines that failed in the older subjects. I should call them subjects, patients. Right. Um, and then there are other, other molecules that whose safety actually has been established mm-hmm. and have been green-lighted for younger um, studies and younger patients. And some of these studies have come actually very, very close to uh, clinical success. So that's what fuels my optimism
0: yeah yeah it it's it's um really exciting um so so in conclusion mark um you are you are doing work in a lot of interrelated areas all related to uh foundationally how the brain works so to speak uh how does it process information uh and when when things go um off kilter, so to speak, uh, whether it's able to come back from that deficit in some fashion. So, so if you look at all this um, research that you've been doing, Mark, what is the area that you are most uh, most excited about? That we will feel, you feel rather, uh, that we will will get some, you know, sort of practical human therapies uh, for the diseases that we discussed. Maybe next five years, ten years.
1: Um, you know in a way you're asking me to you know choose my favorite (laughs) child Uh, (laughs) but um but since you put a a finer point on it what what, where do i expect to see successes in the next five or ten years um i i certainly expect to see a success expect to see a success in fragile x yeah um, in that time frame and i also am, am quite optimistic about some uh, brand new therapeutic approaches in amblyopia that um, we, we didn't get a chance to talk in detail about that but um, there are some um, really exciting results um, that show that it's possible to get a full recovery of vision um, in an amblyopic eye at an age that's older than um, what would be possible with patch therapy which is the current standard of care so so uh, I'm, very, I'm an optimist by nature, and uh, I'm very optimistic that um, within the next 10 years, we'll see some uh, ther- therapies advanced uh, on the basis of this
0: research. Excellent. Excellent. This has been great, Mark. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me.
1: Uh, it, it was really a pleasure, and thank you very much for your interest in our work.
0: Absolutely. Uh, good luck with this very important research. Thank you.